Grace and peace I offer to you. My name is Reverend Dawn Douglas Flowers, and it is my joy to welcome you into this time of worship with us. I serve at Parkway Hills United Methodist Church in Madison, Mississippi. We are an inclusive and mission-minded congregation committed to be a place for everyone as we welcome, grow, serve, and celebrate together. We would love to know who is worshiping alongside us. We invite you to reach out to us. Let us know you are here. Ask us any questions you may have about this particular church family, any questions you may have about how to get more involved. For those of you who have been worshiping online with us, we have a change coming up. August 8th, we will move into our more traditional schedule, offering two worship service times. So our online service will be offered at 1045. If you are in the Madison area, we invite you to join us anytime beginning August 8th at 8.30 or 10.45. But note that August 8th, our online service will move to 10.45. But now, I invite us all, let us prepare our hearts and our minds to worship God this day. Please stand and join me in our opening prayer. Your response is in the bold, and let us pray. O gracious and holy God, give us diligence to see you, wisdom to perceive you, and patience to wait for you. Grant us, O God, a mind to meditate on you, eyes to behold you, ears to listen for your word, a heart to love you, and alive to proclaim you through the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please take your hymnals. You should find one in the chair in front of you or underneath the chair in front of you. Please turn to hymn number 103 as we stand and sing, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. Hymn number 103.
I'd like to invite the children to come down for children's moments. And uh, in my elderly state, I need a seat. <laughs> There's no way I can sit on that step. <laughs> Woo, it's good to see you. Come on down with the peanut butter and your pretty selves. So good to see you. I see Emma and Wes and Caroline and Abigail and Charlie. Woo, Chloe Jean and Sister Kate. So good to see you here today. Are y'all feeling good today? Okay, yes? Thumbs up, huh? Well, I have some questions for you. Do you know what this is? It's a Bible, that's right. What's inside a Bible? Stories. That is right, stories. Are they stories for grown-ups? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Are they stories for children? How about teenagers? No. no. <laughs> um, there might be a story or two for teenagers. Yes, you think so? Thank you. You have a green Bible book? Do you have a Bible book like this? <laughs> I'm so glad you have some Bibles at your house. That's uh, They come in all different colors. I think this is my favorite one. Uh, because it's small and doesn't weigh very much. Right, that's right. This is more colorful. I want to share with you some stories in here. Do you think there are any stories about children in the Bible? Yeah. Yeah. You know some, huh? I wonder if you know these, okay? I've got some marked. Tell me if you know this story. Mm, who do you think it is? It's about a big sister. Anybody in here a big sister? There's your big sister. Chloe Jean, you're a big sister, right? This is a big sister named Miriam. Do you know what this story is about and Miriam did? What did Miriam do? Who is this baby? Do you know who that baby is? Jesus. No. <laughs> Could be, but it's Moses, okay? So Miriam was the big sister, and her job was to watch Moses. It was a very important job. Sometimes big children have to watch little children, right? I've got another story about somebody. Let me find this one. Okay, this one is a little boy. I know his hair is kind of long, but back then they grew it long. Anybody know this one? About a boy who woke up in the middle of the night hearing somebody call his name. This was Samuel, and God was talking to Samuel in the night. It was an important thing that God had to tell Samuel, and Samuel listened to God. Now I have another one. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll get this one. Who's this guy? This guy right here. Okay. Do you know this one? Now y'all have been answering. What have y'all been saying? Jesus, right? This is Jesus. This one is Jesus. He. Um, I, have, I, have, I have a little book about Jesus. Yes, and this one is a very important story about Jesus because he was just a young boy. And look at who he's talking to. All the grown-ups. He, was, he had some questions and some, maybe some answers for the grown-ups. And they were listening to him. 
And now this is my last one. This one, who is that? That one is Jesus as a grown-up. And who's all around him? Little children. And do you know what Jesus said? The grown-ups were like, Jesus, you're too busy, you're too important, you, you need to, uh, let's, let's talk about the important stuff. And he said, stop. Let the little children come to me because they're important. So what I want to say to the grown-ups is, children are important. And sometimes we think older people are important. Youth are important too, but children are important. Some studies say that children make up their mind about God by the time they're 12. Very important. Thank you for bringing your children to church today. Let's have a prayer, okay? Thank you for coming down today. I'm so happy to see you. Will you repeat after me? Dear God, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for grown-ups who read the Bible with us. Thank you for loving us. Amen. Now, Lindsay and so everybody, three in kindergarten, everybody that goes to the upstairs, see y'all later, okay? Thank you. Finally let go, but in a moment It overtook me from below The weight of pride and my self-centeredness Keeps me bound in chains I'm embarrassed to admit this But old bitterness remains I guess I fooled myself Or was willingly deceived But either way I guess I wanted so much to believe I'd gotten over all the hurt and pain Could finally rise above Feel mercy's freedom once again Forgiving is the hardest part of love Lord purify my heart heal this wound and make me whole give me a brand new start take the sickness from my soul help me to show to others 
all the grace you've given me. Fill me to overflowing with your love. Let me forgive and be set free. The irony in all of this is I'm not beyond blame. This hurt I'm holding on to. So many times I've called somebody else the same. Lord, purify my heart. Heal this wound and make me whole. Give me a brand new start. Take this sickness from my soul. Help me to show to others all the grace you've given me. Fill me to overflowing with your love. Let me forgive and be set free. Fill me to overflowing with your love. Let me forgive and be set free. Our lesson this morning is from John 6, chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we going to buy bread for all these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many people? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, Gather up the fragments left over, so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. Left by when the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. 
When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, got into a boat, and started across the lake to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The lake became rough because of a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the lake and coming near the boat, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they waited to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the land towards which they were going. Thank you, Susan and Shelley. It occurred to me while I was walking out here that it's a little bit of a bummer to see the guest speaker come up with a stack of books. Um, I'm, I'm not planning to, to read to you from a lot of books today, but I was recently reunited with books that I hadn't had in about 10 years since we moved up here from the Gulf Coast. My mom brought them up, so I am excited to have books again, so I do carry them around with me a little bit more. Um, for those of you who may have consulted your Jefferson Bible today, um, you probably noticed that this miracle, along with all miracles in the Bible, did not end up in, in this work. Um, Jefferson Bible, of course, is the Bible that Thomas Jefferson put together when he was 77 years old. And what he um, did was he edited the New Testament. It's only the New Testament. And he wrote on the cover, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And, and what he does, and he describes this to his friends in some notes I'm going to share with you in a minute. But um, he went through the Greek, Latin, French, and English versions of the New Testament and took out those parts that he found essential and understandable. He, he describes it to John Adams, our second president, in a letter in 1813. He said, I've performed this operation for my own use by cutting verse by verse out of the printed book and by arranging the matter which is evidently his and which is as distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. The result is an octavo of 46 pages of pure and unsophisticated doctrines such as were professed and acted on by the unlettered apostles the Apostolic Fathers, and the Christians of the first century. A few years later, he wrote another letter to not quite as learned a friend. He's a little bit more colloquial. He says, I have made a wee little book, which I call the philosophy of Jesus. It is a paradigm of his doctrines made by cutting the text out of the book and arranging them on the page of a blank book in a certain order of time or subject a more beautiful or precious moral, mor morsel of ethics as I have ever seen. Um, so you can see the original work, by the way, if you visit the Library of Congress. You can see the original Jefferson Bible. And you will notice that razors and scissor cuts as he scrutinized every word that he thought was absolutely essential. Now, there was a congressman from Iowa back in 1903 who, for whatever reason, was over at the Smithsonian digging through the archives. I'm sure the people of Iowa would have preferred that he was doing other things, but he was there in Washington maybe his first time. I don't know. 
but he found the Jefferson Bible. And he thought, well, this is incredible. This is one of the you know, fathers of our country. And he has taken the time to pull out these essential texts. So he files a resolution to ask the government printing office to print 9,000 copies of the Jefferson Bible. Well, in the meantime, he found a local printer who had decided to print off these copies of the Jefferson Bible. He forgot to go back to the government budget office to tell them to cut the printing. So one day arrives 9,000 copies of the Jefferson Bible. So from that time until about the mid-1950s, new members of Congress and the House and Senate were given a copy of the Jefferson Bible. This was not because the government necessarily believed they all should have it. It was because they had 9,000 copies that a congressman had gone and found. Um, you know, inefficiency, perhaps, in our government and elsewhere is not a completely new thing. Um, Jefferson's Bible takes out any hint of mysticism. Any, anything that was not firmly planted on terra firma, Jefferson was not interested in. And it was the sayings of Jesus that were especially important, the ethical teachings. Um, so we, we anticipate knowing that, that virtually all, well, no, not virtually, every miracle, including the resurrection, including the ascension, all of these fundamental moments that we sometimes gravitate to or that might be included in things like a storybook Bible don't find their way in to the Jefferson Bible. There's a pastor named Forrest Church who the Jefferson Bible made a huge impact on who writes in the foreword that Jefferson's search was not so much for the historical Jesus but for the intelligible Jesus. He was marking down the parts he understood. He wanted something that he could say, these are the parts of this New Testament that I firmly grasp. So the miracles literally did not make the cut. Our third president, this person of faith, this person of reason and knowledge and interesting uh, habits like cutting up his Bible, is not the only person who has confronted the miracles and kind of thrown his hands up into the air. Um, there's a person that many of y'all are familiar with, Dr. Albert Schweitzer. So Schweitzer was a physician by training, and he and his wife go out into the jungles of Africa and set up a hospital where it is said that they saw 2,000 patients in nine months of the first nine months that they were there. And of course, that station and hospital that they set up uh, continued for some time long after those first difficult nine months. Um, such a brilliant kind of virtuoso musician took a pedal organ that could be set up in tropical weather so that he could continue to play the organ out in this heat. And the organ was still around, may even still be around, but it lasted until he was 88 years old. There's people who would go and see him in other locales and they're like, he's still playing the pipe organ that he drug out there to Africa. Um, that's interesting enough. Like if you had a grandpa that you could say that about, you'd say, well, Gramps was interesting. Well, he wins the Nobel Prize for philosophy. <laughs> Went to med school, wins the Nobel Prize for philosophy when he writes something called Reverence of Life. And I mention that because he, like Jefferson, 
really thought that ethics were an important thing for us to spend our time contemplating. Reverence for life, in his words, afforded him a fundamental principle of morality, namely that good consists in maintaining, assisting, and enhancing life. And so for him to destroy, harm, or hinder life was evil. And that was the fundamental basis of this philosophy that, like I say, Nobel Prize. All of that would have been enough. But when he was not treating the ill or drafting award-winning treatises in philosophy or playing an organ um, in Africa and, and composing music, he uh, dabbled in theology. Um, and actually became a pastor and became a seminary professor. Um, and his most famous work is this thing, The Quest of the Historical Jesus. It was such a fundamental work that when he wrote it, there was an entire line of thought. There was an entire group of people who were digging around for what does this historical Jesus mean? Who was the actual Jesus? What can we say firmly about who Jesus was? This was so profound and made such a big impact that that entire school of thought took a break for about a decade when he wrote this, because they had to sit back and kind of think, well, this changes everything. Um, he believed that Jesus was best understood by stripping away our own expectations and theories and considering Jesus from the standpoint of his own convictions and beliefs. And so in Schweitzer's view, Jesus was a person who was given to Jewish es eschatology, and that for him, it was important for people to understand that Jesus probably thought the world was about to end, that his ministry was ushering in the end times. And, that, and if you understand Jesus in that way, it helps to understand some of the way that he talked, some of the way that he ministered, some of the way that he was. Well, the reason I'm introducing you to Dr. Schweitzer, if you didn't already know him, is that in this quest for the historic Jesus, he has a lot to say about the miracles, too. And I'm sorry, I cannot make him sound like 2021 Twitter. So you just have to hear him, and then we'll talk about it a little. When he talks about Jesus walking on water, this is an excerpt. He had walked along the shore, but did the disciples not believe that they saw him come walking towards them upon the waves of the sea? The impulse of the introduction of miraculous into the narrative came from the unintelligible element with which the men who surrounded Jesus were at that time confronted. This is a very fancy way of saying those people did not see Jesus walk on the water, but they were taken up by such feelings that he was walking on the shore and they were confused and they needed to find a way to talk about it. For Schweitzer, he could not reconcile himself to the idea of miracles. So he, he really thought that it was not so much this business of this is what happened, it was the way that people had to explain it, and that really miracles were the way that we shrouded Jesus's ministry in a sort of gravitas that it wouldn't have otherwise had. Now, nobody questions Schweitzer's commitment to the faith, but if you were among those who look at today's miracles that we just read that Shelley and Susan just read, and you think, well, I'm having a hard time getting there on this. You're not alone. You're in pretty good company, including folks who have written and that we still talk about and that there are even statues to. If we take a look at the text today, loaves and fishes and walking on water, I think we'll all first note that some of us were first experienced these stories when we were little. A lot of these stories were first presented to us 
as little kids. It's funny, the miracles sometimes translate better for children than they do for us as adults because there's something about that fantastic nature of the storytelling that grabs attention in a very particular way. And let's face it, kids are not quite as um, cynical as we are as we get older. They're not the ones who look behind the special effects quite the same way that we do as adults. But if you can go back there and you just hear these stories at face value, I think if we're being honest, we have to say we have questions of our own. If you look at them, what was the point of this miraculous catering event? It's just lunch. Wouldn't it have made more practical sense for people to go grab a bite and then come back? Would it have killed these people to miss a meal? I'm assuming everyone had breakfast. There's really no urgency here. Um, And what's the effect, really, of this moment? No one's life is saved. No major problem is resolved for this portion of the world. Um, Do we even know if these people were particularly hungry? We only hear it from one disciple that's kind of like, hey, it's getting near lunch. We don't really know if they were needy or hungry or, or, or what really the situation was. Last week in our Sunday school class, we were talking about something else, and Bill Flynn asked, well, I wonder who cleaned up. He wasn't, he wasn't talking about this story, but I thought, well, it applies here too. What did they do with all those fish bones and breadcrumbs after 5,000 people tore through this, this lunch that we hear about? The boat trip is weird too, because if you'll notice in between, Jesus goes to the mountains to withdraw, and then the disciples all get on a boat. Where are they going? I mean, Jesus is still there. He's staying there. Why are they? I don't know. There's no sense of where, what appointment they had. It's, it's apparently nighttime. Why are they on a boat in the first place? And if you'll notice, there's ambiguity. If you go back and look in your bulletin and you read this passage, you know when they become terrified? Shortly after it is said that Jesus is walking towards them. So we don't really know, are they terrified because of the weather? Or are they terrified because they think a man is walking across the water towards them? But there again, why blow a miracle on an afternoon thunderstorm? What really was that about? Because just wait 15 minutes and this thing will probably blow over and then we're back to where we were. We have lived with these stories for so long that I think sometimes it's hard for us to think about how strange some of this action is. The standard interpretation, which we've all heard, is that the loaves and fishes story is where Jesus acts as the host of a meal. That he welcomes and invites everyone into the community to come to table, and it's a show of God's hospitality. And I know you've heard the sermon that goes, God's hospitality is so abundant that not only does he bring them in, give them loaves and fishes, but there are leftovers. They start out with not enough. They end up with more than they could even consume during the afternoon. This, interestingly, is the only miracle that's found in all four Gospels, the loaves and fishes. That's the only one that you will find written up in each of the four. Um, in here in John, as in Matthew and Mark, it's followed up by the walking on the water. And what some scholars have said is that there's a parallel between this story and what happens in the Exodus, where Moses and the people experience manna, food coming from heaven, and then shortly after it, the Red Sea is parted. So you have this meal thing followed by a water event, and that there's some parallels here in the ministry of Jesus. 
I thought it was interesting. Um, some of you may be familiar with this guy, William Sloan Coffin. He was a public minister. He preached at Riverside Baptist Church in New York for a while, but he was a very interesting kind of ethicist himself. But he was really taken with the miracles. And he said miracles really slip into two different categories. There are miracles that are the foundation of our belief. Like these are the miracles that happen and we say, well, this is the reason I have faith, such as resurrection, ascension. Maybe for some people it's the miracle of the virgin birth, those types of miracles that are these fundamental moments that we say, wow, this is very different. And this is the cause of belief. And then there are those miracles that are the expressions of belief or the expressions of faith. Those miracles that really in and of themselves are not the reason you believe in God, but those miracles that express what it means, what God is, what this faith is. In talking about Matthew's version of this story, the walking on water part, Coffin said, in the story of Jesus walking on the water, the true miracle the one that is the basis of faith and makes the story eternally, if not literally true, takes place when a despairing Peter cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus does. That's really the central miracle of every Christian life. When sinking in our helplessness, we reach out for a love greater than we ourselves can ever express. When we reach out for a truth deeper than we could ever articulate and for a beauty richer than we ourselves can ever contain. We say, Lord, save me, and Jesus does. We cry out for a thimble full of help, and we receive an ocean full in return. For Coffin, that was the miracle of Jesus. And I like to think of this idea of some of these miracles as expressions of faith. These acts that help us to understand what does faith look like? What exactly does all of this mean? I think these fit pretty neatly into that category, expressions of faith. The great catering moment of Galilee is probably not the reason that people believe there is a God, but it does say something about what God believes about people. They also remind me of another miracle that we only find in John, which is the wedding at Cana. And this is a vivid miracle, and some, for some people, the favorite miracle, because it's just such a unique thing. They go to a wedding, and Jesus, they don't, and notably, John does not call Jesus' mother by her name. He says Jesus' mother, but we know she's Mary. And so John, John tells this story. They're at Cana, and the wine runs out. And so Mary, and, and anybody who's had a mom, I'm glad my mom is, is here now, she just looks at Jesus and says, They have no wine. <laughs> and and Jesus uh, says, <laughs> not, not how we would do this in the South, but woman, what concern is that to you and me? <laughs> um, my hour has not yet come. But Mary senses that he's going to act. And so she goes, if you'll notice, does not take his word to mean anything and goes and talks to the people there and says, y'all be ready. He's going to tell you what to do. Don't question it. Just do it. It'll be the right thing. What happens is, we all know, the water becomes wine, and then there's a tester there who says, this is even better than what you have before. So the water becomes wine, and then it's better wine than what they had originally purchased for the wedding in the first place. But there's no wind-up. It doesn't feel like he anticipates any of this. Like, I think his real reaction is, why are you worried about that? This is not something we're going to do something about. Um, 
and it, it seems like his impulse is to decline, that this is any of his business. But the persistence of people asking gets him to respond in a way, and then you get this kind of off-the-cuff feeling about who Jesus is. And I think it's not different than with us. Sometimes those things we do in reaction kind of tell you more about who we are than those scripted parts of what we do, than when we're really polished up and thinking about it. For Jesus, what it looks like is these very interesting insights into how he deals with humans. This is not unlike the loaves and fishes, where it doesn't appear that Jesus first recognized this as a great calamity. I don't think he went into the day thinking this was going to be the day that people would be talking about for thousands of years in relationship to lunch. He probably hoped they would write down something about what he said. If you notice, there is nothing about what he said. This is a total lunch story. We don't know anything about what he said. He probably thought people might capture a nice saying today. Didn't happen. Also with the disciples on the boat. It's not evident that he shares their tension about this moment. He just apparently, I don't know what it was. It's not clear. The bat signal went up. I don't know if he heard them yelling across the water. I don't know if he saw a storm and he was like, John's really scared of thunderstorms. I better get out there. I don't know why he does this, but he seems to react. He sees this opportunity. He goes out and is responsive. This thing of responding and responding out of abundance, to me, is a beautiful image of the love of Christ. He exceeds the expectation of his mother in Cana. He provides food and even leftovers for the multitude, and he not only comforts the terrified disciples in the boat, but as we see in other versions, he gets the storm to stop. This points toward a God that is, I think, bigger than our imagination, and able to take our poorly formed and unimaginative request and do something amazing. So we cry out for a thimble full, and we get back an ocean full. Dorothy Day did not have the Jefferson Schweitzer experience with this story. Her second memoir was titled Loaves and Fishes, and if you know anything about her, she, she's a Catholic, she started the Catholic Worker Movement and was very much a part of New York life for a time. She was trained as a journalist and was a freelance writer. She wound up getting really taken with the labor movement and identified with folks, and then started showing up at protests. By the way, at this point, not a Christian, not a Catholic, not interested in any of that. Kind of a, you know, she would have probably been on Hoover's watch list, honestly. She shows up for a, uh, a rally about women getting the right to vote and ends up getting arrested. She gets badly beaten and while in jail goes on a hunger strike. Different kind of person. A, 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 a person that had a skeptical view of the way that society was playing out in the United States. This sent her into a spiral of depression. Her daughter says that when she came out, there was a lot of failed relationships, a lot of failed love, a lot of disappointment and depression. She started drinking heavily. She met a lot of writers. They shut down the bars in New York. And one day, while she is absolutely spiraling, slips into St. Joe's Church in New York on the back road during Mass and sits there and is so overcome with what happens that she decides... I need this. I need this worshipful space. <laughs> she was common law married at the time. 
You might imagine the person she was with didn't believe in institutions at all, much less the church, so he didn't follow her there, which was kind of conflicting because they had a small child. Um, but she becomes a devout Catholic, and she starts the Catholic workers' movement, which produces a newspaper, but perhaps more importantly produces these houses, these houses that, that, that give uh, shelter and food to the homeless. She became a zealot for meeting the needs of the poor and starts pulling people in, the lowest of the low, throughout New York and the boroughs and in the surrounding area, and dedicates her life to that. Her newspaper and her houses, community homes, still exist. There are still people who are working for that very same foundation that she founded. And she was such a good writer that her words continue to reverberate. There are people like Thomas Merton, who himself was a great Christian theorist and writer, who felt like Dorothy Day was tapping into something in a way that had never been done before. So she, the long loneliness continues to inspire people for what it means to really put your back into this faith stuff. But Loaves and Fishes was a big, big story for her because she believed that this was a moment when Jesus acknowledges and recognizes and invites people in. And so for her, every poor person that she treated, she felt like she was welcoming Jesus because Jesus identified with these folks who were living on the margins of society. And she knew something about that because she herself had been marginalized and been on those outskirts for so long. She had a friend, a guy named Robert Colts. Mark, I was going to ask you about this guy, child psychiatrist, and apparently a good writer. He was a good friend of her, and he says that Dorothy could not get out of her mind the example that Jesus set as he walked the Galilee of 2,000 years ago. Not only encouraging, admonishing, exhorting, explaining, summoning, but time and again doing. As he moved from town to town, he saw what was visible for anyone, anywhere, anytime. The hurt and anguish and suffering of human beings. He saw the hungry, the thirsty, and he moved to give them food and drink. He saw the lame, the blind, and he moved to heal them. He revealed a readiness to embrace without qualifications the very sad and vulnerable people who he met, not only to help them and teach them, but to take up their lives. There was something in Jesus that went beyond just a day of volunteerism. He wanted to be a part of that life. He wanted to be a part of the fabric of what made these people who they were and in that way acknowledged them and invited them in as a whole person. And for Dorothy Day, that submersive kind of ministry was all that made sense. It's not enough to offer a meal. It was living with them. That to her was how you welcome somebody in. So it is much bigger than a catering story for her. This was the story that showed us God's nature of welcoming and of providing. Um, Laurie has a daily practice of reading an email from a guy named Richard Rohr, who I'm sure some of y'all have heard of. He, he writes a daily meditation, and I marvel at this because they're really, really good, and it's every day. And the dude's written like 30 books, and I think now he's 80 years old. And he just keeps cranking out these awesome emails every day. And he's been doing it for years. And so I'm, I'm, I'm really in awe of this guy. He sent one this week that was a meditation on the disinherited. And he talked, that's a, that's a Thurman. Um, Howard Thurman is a guy who used that phrase first. But it's this thing about being so down and out that you just can't find your way to believing you have value. 
And for Rohr, he doesn't see that as an exception. He thinks increasingly that's the way we feel about ourselves, that people feel disinherited and that they have it burned into them that they don't count. And I think our nerves are taking a real shot um, and probably have been for a long time, but I think in this particular moment of history, there is something about the constant assault on our anxiety and nerves that I think has started to work its way in so that we are anxious in ways we never have been before and fearful in ways that we've never been before. And so somebody like Richard Rohr is thinking about, well, what do you do with that? How, what do you do with the disinherited? What do you do with that feeling when you yourself feel disinherited? Um, so I don't, I, don't, I, I kind of, I, I thought about that for a second because I thought, you know, even when you're surrounded in a church or even when you're surrounded by family or even when you're surrounded by friends, there is sometimes this desperate feeling of loneliness. There is sometimes this desperate feeling of belonging and what a natural need that is. And it can ebb and flow. You can even have moments where you just kind of feel like you're just outside of that, that circle. Um, when, when Jesus provides this meal to the multitude, as much as anything, he is telling these people that they belong. He is giving them a new identity that they cannot, that, that's not, that doesn't fluctuate in the same way that some of the identities we wrestle with fluctuate. It mattered to him that people have a meal. The togetherness of that, I think, mattered to him. Um, I think the terror that strikes the disciples matters. I think being a comfort to people who were terrified and scared, it mattered. It, it did matter to step in and to embrace someone. Just the simple act of saying, you're not going through this by yourself. That was, a, that was an act of, of importance to him. Um, I think that even, I don't know that he shares all the time the anxiety of others because he doesn't seem to see it the same way. When his mom is worked up about the wedding, I don't think he thinks that's a big deal. I don't think he thinks that's worth getting worked up about. I don't know that he thinks giving lunch to the people that had gathered was that big of a deal. But he was drawn into thinking about it from another perspective and says, this is what they need right here. Maybe I don't have to... I don't have to share your anxiety to appreciate that you have anxiety. I, and I think Jesus steps in in that way. He steps in in a way that says, I might not feel the way you feel, but I can be responsive to that. There's something holy about that. There is something miraculous about that. Um, knowing that we belong, that we are children of God, that we have this identity, I think can save us from personal despair. But also once we see that everyone else is in that same boat, and are children of God in that way, it can reconcile us to one another in a way that no other thought can. You can't look at people the same way once you see them through that lens of Jesus breaking up loaves and fishes. He does not know their story. He does not know what they believe. He does not know what they did yesterday or what they will do tomorrow. They get the same treatment. And there's something about recognizing that and looking around a crowd of strangers and knowing that he embraced them without full knowledge that I think should inform the way we walk away from this story. Um, it does not bother me that Thomas, Edis, that Thomas Jefferson edited his Bible. I think we all do it. I mean, we probably don't have the, whatever it is, the scissors and the, you know, the, uh, the tools that take it out. We don't, we don't cut our Bibles up, but we all pick our favorite parts. We highlight the parts we understand or that we like. We kind of walk away from the parts that don't make any sense to us. I'm sure none of you have revisited Leviticus this week unless you're just disturbed in some way. 
Um, and, you know, uh, I don't think that we should judge one another if you sometimes struggle to think that some of these events happened exactly the way the writer says them. I don't think that should be a big problem for us in the church. Um, you wouldn't be the first person of faith to struggle with the miracles. But I think what happens is we do lose something of the nature of God if we discard these stories of the miracles because these stories do tell us in a way that no sayings do that God is willing to do bold things to remind us that we matter. These stories we've talked about today are all in service of telling people that they matter, which is one of the toughest mental blocks for us to get around throughout our life. Do we matter? Is this worth it? Am I worth it? Jesus says resoundingly in these stories, if he says anything, you matter, you are worth it, you belong. Um, and so that, going back to that thought, William Sloan Coffin, what are these miracles, expressions of faith? That's what Jesus believed, and I really like that. can really sink my teeth into that. I would not waste any time arguing with somebody like Thomas Jefferson over that. He's a smart guy. He saw a lot of angles. He had his Bible in four different languages. So I'm not going to fight him about it, but I do think he's missing something. I do think there is something there that is lost if we don't see what Jesus is telling us about himself. The truth of these stories is undeniable. We belong. We are children of God. And the people we meet, no matter how much they may fill us with irritation, resentment, and anger, they belong to. Amen. Join me now, join me as we go to God in prayer. You will have a response during our prayer time. When you hear merciful God, you are invited to respond. Hear our prayer. Let us pray. God of abundance, you open your hand and feed us in due season, satisfying the desires of every living thing. Grant that our inner beings may be strengthened through your spirit and that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that you may accomplish within us far more than we can ask or imagine. Merciful God, hear our prayer. We pray for the family of nations, the families in our communities and our own families, that we may have all, that they may have all they need to live in peace and harmony. Merciful God, hear our prayer. We pray for all churches and denominations that we may find ways of cooperating to care for the earth and care for those in need while giving you the glory for all that we do. Merciful God, hear our prayer. God, you are near to all who call out to you. Use us as you use the boy with two fish and five barley loaves to answer the cries of the hungry. Merciful God, hear our prayer. <clears throat> we pray for the victims of war and violence, for the orphans, mothers, and men who must live on the streets, and for all those who are seen as the fragments of society. 
May they be gathered up so that no one is lost. Merciful God, hear our prayer. We pray for the sick and those facing the end of their days. May Christ dwell in their hearts through faith, and may they know that they are rooted and grounded in love. Merciful God, hear our prayer. When we would make you a king, forgive us. When we were caught up when we are caught up in the storms of life, come to us, calm our fears, and help us to reach our destinations. We lift all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Amen. And deliver us from evil, for thine is the pact and the power and the glory of God. Amen. I ask you to please take your hymnals and stand together as we sing our closing hymn, number 378, Amazing Grace. Please stand together.
So if this was not your cup of tea, that is okay. The real pastor is back next week. Um, but as you go, go knowing that we serve a God that cares deeply about belonging and that has given us a place to belong and a family to belong in. And a God that is so abundant and beyond our wildest imagination that when we ask for a thimbleful, we get back an ocean in return. Thank you for joining us for worship. If you're looking for a safe place to explore faith, or if you'd just like to learn more about this community of faith, we'd love to hear from you. Please reach out to any member of our staff with prayer requests, needs, or questions, or just to find out how to join our church family. Now may the love of God surround you. May the love of God uplift you. May the love of God stand with you through the challenges ahead. May the love of God convince you in every situation to love. Go now to love others, even as Christ loves you. Amen.